Amen. All right, well, we're there in uh, Luke chapter number three. And you may be thinking to yourself, why would we read a chapter like that? You know, and many people, when they get to chapters like that in the Bible, they'll skip them, these genealogies. But you know, the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And uh, we need to see the value in all, of the, in all of the Bible. And the reason that we read that passage this morning is because, like I said in the announcements, we're continuing this series on the idea of creation versus evolution. And uh, we, we've talked about a lot of different things, but uh, today and next week we're going to deal with two Questions And the question is this, is the earth billions of years old? The Bible, as we just saw here, and this is just one example of many places, gives a chronology from Christ all the way to Adam and, and all the way to the beginning. In fact, we won't read the entire thing we just did. But if you look at verse 23, I want you to notice in Luke 3.23, it says, And Jesus himself began to be about 30, uh, began to be about three years old of age, being as it was supposed the son of Joseph. Now, of course, we know that he was the son of God, uh, but as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And the chronology goes through, if you look at verse 31, it says, which was the son of Malia, which was the son of Menon, which was the son of Matheta, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. And you've got King David there. If you look down at verse number 34, it says, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham. Those are the, the three patriarchs. You've got, of course, Abraham there, which was the son of Therah, which was the son of Nacor. Look at verse 38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. So I want you to notice there's an unbroken chain uh, of the chronology from Jesus all the way to Adam. We know today, you know, the year is 2017. We're living 2017 years from the birth of Christ. But what I want you to understand is that the Bible teaches, and we're not going to do it in this sermon because that's not what this sermon is about, but if you were to go back and look at all the chronology from Christ all the way back to Adam, and look at the dates that these people lived and all of, that, and all of those things, and used all the tools in Scripture that are given to us to be able to, to see the age of the earth, you would find that the Bible teaches, and this may be surprising to some of you if you've never heard it before, the Bible teaches that the earth is about 6,300 years old. 6,300 years old. Now again, I'm not going to go and, and, and do that research in this sermon because this sermon's not about that, but I would encourage you to do that research on your own if you'd like, or you can find resources online that have done it already, but if you go back, you can study from the beginning to the flood. You can study Genesis 5, 6, and 7 and see the chronologies that are given there in regards to how much time goes between the, the, the beginning of creation to the flood. You could go from the flood to Abraham in Genesis 11, we have a chronology there, and it gives you the time and the amount of people, uh, the amount of time they lived on the earth. You could go from Abraham to when they sojourned in the land of Egypt. You could see the years of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You could figure that out. You could go from when they went into Egypt to when they came out of Egypt. The Bible tells us those accounts. You can go from the Exodus through the book of Judges, you can go to, you can look at all the chronologies in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, all the dates of the different kings that lived. You can see when the temple uh, was, was established. All of that is, is put in Scripture. You can go uh, up to the captivity when they were taken out of the land towards the end of the Old Testament. You can figure all that out, and here's what you'll find, that the earth is about, according to the Bible, about 6,300 years old. Now, again, I would encourage you to research that on your own if, if you're not convinced of that or look at what the Bible says. That's not the point of the sermon, but here's what I want you to understand. The evolutionists teach that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. They teach that the earth is 4.5 billion years old. In fact, uh, I'll read for you from space.com, which says, By dating the rocks in the ever-changing crust, as well as uh, neighbors such as the moon and visiting meteorites, scientists have calculated the earth is 4.54 billion years old. But here's my favorite part. With an error range of 50 million years, you know. So, you know, 50 million years here or there, no big deal. But according to them, the earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Wikipedia says the earth is 4.543 billion years old. Now, here's what I need to understand. All right? And I'm not that great at math. So, you know, maybe you're like, I am. But, you know, I do know this. There's a huge difference between 6,300 and 4.5 billion. All right. Those are those are uh, numbers that are, uh, are are extremely 
uh, different. Now, here's what you need to understand. Evolutionists need the earth to be billions of years old. And if you're a first-time guest here, we're in the middle of the series. You're, you're jumping in right in the middle of a series we've been going through on creation versus evolution. Not every sermon at Verity Baptist Church is this, you know, about science and things like this. It's just a series we're in. Uh, about six weeks, we'll move on to something else different, uh, when we're done. But here's what I want you to understand. The evolutionists need billions of years in order to make their theory seem less ridiculous. Because the idea, if they were to, and there was a time when everybody agreed with the Bible that the earth was about 6,000 years old, 6,300 years old. But the idea that, you know, an animal could evolve into a human or whatever over 6,000 years old, uh, over 6,000 years is just a ridiculous uh, idea. And here's the thing, it's ridiculous to think it can't happen anyway, period. No matter how many millions of years you give it. But to give it time, you know, the, the millions of years and the billions of years is like the magic ingredient where you throw that in and all of a sudden it becomes possible. The evolutionists need billions of years to make their theory seem less ridiculous. But if you remember when we started the series, we talked about the end game of the evolution theory. And here's what you need to understand. Whether the evolutionist scientists understand this or not, the end game of the evolution theory is to discredit the Bible. It's to break people's faith in God. It's to bring people away from God. And what you need to understand, you say, well, why does it matter if the earth is 6,300 years old, if the earth is uh, 4.5 billion years old? Here's what's at stake is the reliability of our holy scriptures. See, the the Bible is a holy book, but the Bible is a very very well-written account of the history of planet earth. See, today people think the Bible is just full of parables. Now, Jesus gave parables in scripture. There are parables in scripture. We understand that. But the Bible itself is a very historical book. In fact, if you're there in Luke chapter 3, I want you to notice, most people think when they read the Bible, they think, you know, it's like, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And here's the thing. That's what evolution teaches. All right. That's the theory of evolution. But I want you to notice just how historical the word of God is. Notice Luke, who's writing the account of the life of Christ. Notice how he, he uh, begins this uh, story in, in chapter 3. He says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. Those are the three major uh, places of rule where he's living. He's telling us, look, it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Herod being tetrarch of Galilee. And his brother Philip, the tetrarch of Ituria. And out of the region of Trachonitis and Licinius, the tetrarch Ibelin. Notice verse 2, Anus and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John. Do you notice how Luke goes into just painstaking detail to kind of just, uh, just put himself into a corner? He's not telling you, hey, what I'm about to tell you is something that someone said it might have happened. It's something that I heard. He goes, he, he, he's trying to show you what I'm going to tell you is accurate. In fact, it happened on the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. It happened when Pontius Pilate was governor. It happened when Herod was a tetrarch. And when Philip, his brother, was a tetrarch also. It happened when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. He's trying to paint himself into a corner and tell you, this is exactly when these events took place. And here's what I understand. That's how the Bible is. The entire Bible. That's why in the same chapter, we have a chronology that goes from Christ all the way to Adam. Because the Bible is not this book where it's just kind of like, well, it might have happened that way. No, it either happened exactly the way the Bible says or the Bible is not true. So to say, well, it doesn't matter, 4.5 billion, 6,300, no big deal. Here's what you need to understand. The stake, the reliability of the Holy Scriptures is at stake. So we've got to learn. We've got to decide. We need to come to the place where we understand. Either, here's what you need to understand. Go to the book of Romans. You're there in Luke. You're going to go past John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 1. Here's what you need to understand. Either the evolutionists are right, and the earth is 4.5 billion years old, or the Bible is right, and the earth is 6,300 years old, but they're not both right. One of them has to be wrong. And either the Bible is true or it's not. Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, I want you to notice this this phrase, and and not next week, but the week after that when we finish the series, we're going to be in Romans and we'll go through the whole thing. But I want you to notice Romans 1.22. The Bible says this, professing themselves. This is talking about 
people who deny God, who believe that we came, they're, they're worshiping the creature more than the creator. He says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now, here's what I want you to understand. These evolutionists have professed themselves to be wise. See, they put on their lab coat and they put on their glasses and they start talking in all these fancy, you know, words that nobody understands. And then, but they, they tell us things that are unreliable. And here's the thing. We as Christians have just because they profess themselves to be wise and they tell us, no, we're smart. We're smarter than you are. We can understand the data in a way that you can't. And then they tell us these things and then we take them as truth. But here's what I want you to understand. And here's kind of the the first point that I want to make is this. We need to realize that the scientific dating methods today cannot be trusted. The, the, the dating methods that they use to tell us that the earth is millions of years old cannot be trusted. And I'll prove it to you here in a second. But here, here's what I'm trying to say. In fact, um, uh, you're there in Romans. Go, go to, uh, go to where do I want you? Second Peter. Second Peter. Uh, if you start at the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, head backwards. You go past Jude, past third, second, and first John into second Peter. Go to second Peter uh, chapter number. Uh, where do I want you? Second Peter chapter number two. See, the evolutionist scientists have told us that they are wise and their methods are reliable. And we have just taken them at their word. But here's the question we have to answer. Are their methods reliable? Can we trust the methods they use to tell us the earth is millions of years old? So let's go, let's go over some of these uh, things that they use to tell us the age of the earth. And like I said, tonight uh, I'll be preaching more of like an actual sermon. You know, this is, we're going to go through a lot of... Uh, we're going to get into a lot of Bible here in a minute, but I want to read some things to you. Uh, let's talk about the geologic column. We're talking about the way they prove the earth is millions of year, years old. The first one I want to talk to you about is the geologic column. So let me start with this. What is the geologic column? You may not be familiar with the geologic column. What is it? I'll read to you this uh, from this article that's just explaining what the geologic column is. It says this. The geologic column is a theoretical classification system for the layers of rocks and fossils that make up the Earth's crust, also known as the standard geologic column. Fossiliferous layers can, be often, uh, can often be traced across entire continents and correlated with rocks in other countries. In such cases, these layers have been given names and assigned dates and are frequently diagrammed as a cross-sectional column known as the geologic column. I have a, a couple of pictures here of things that they put in textbooks of the geologic column. I'm sure you can't see them. But they'll put a picture like this in a textbook, or maybe a picture like this in a textbook, and they'll show kids, and they'll say, see, the earth has all these layers of rocks. And they'll tell them there's three major uh, sections. There's the Paleozoic era, there's the Mesozoic area, there's the Cenozoic area. And they'll tell you, you've got the Jurassic period, and the Cretaceous period, and you've got all these different layers of rock. And we find these different fossils in these layers. And they'll tell the children, they'll say, these layers of rocks are X amount of millions of years old. So when we find these fossils in those rocks, we know that those animals were that old. And they'll say, this geologic column proves that those animals are millions of years old, proves that the earth is millions of years old, and all that. That's what they are referring to when they talk about the geologic column. If you're in school, you may have seen something like this, a picture like this. They'll have layers of rock, and they'll put the different animals into there, going from what they call a simple creature to, you know, man and and modern animals at, at the top. Now, here's what you need to understand. And here's the question we need to ask. Was the geologic column created using any scientific dating methods. Because here's what most people think. They think, well, the reason they're giving us... T- it, uh, really, it, it's as factual like this as it is like this, all right? It doesn't really matter. But here's the thing. They'll, they'll say the reason they're giving us these columns is because somebody in some lab, they've got some big computer, they've got some big device that tells them that these fossils are this old, these rocks are this old. Here's the question we've got to ask. When you look at the geologic column, uh, was it created using, using any scientific dating methods? Now, let me say this. In, in 1947, American chemist Willard Libby, who died in 1980, introduced radiocarbon dating. All right, Radiocarbon dating is the scientific method, one of the main scientific methods used today to be able to date things to tell you how old they are. That was invented in 1947. 
Charles Lyell was a Scottish lawyer who wrote a book in the 1830s called The Principles of Geology. Lyell was primarily responsible for giving the world the concept of the geologic column. He created the geologic column where each rock layer was given a name like Jurassic, an age, and an index fossil long before the dating techniques. And here's what I want you to understand. The dates assigned, okay, they, it's not like they use carbon dating or radioactive dating or something like that to assign the dates to these rocks. Because here's the thing. That type of dating wasn't invented until 1947. This was created back in the 1830s, you know, well over 100 years before carbon dating. So here's the question. How did uh, Charles Lyell decide that this rock was 470 million years old as opposed to this rock being 210 million years old? How did he decide that? And here's the question. He, here's the answer to that question. He just made it up. He just decided that that's what he thought. And he wrote it in a book, and he, and he printed it, and people like Charles Darwin read that and said, well, I bet I can prove that, you know, with evolution and things like that. But here's what I want you to understand. When you look at this, when you open up a textbook, you kids, when you go to school, you open up a textbook, and you see this, realize there is no scientific, you know, uh, experiment. There's nothing that was done. There's just a guy 100 years ago who was good at drawing pictures who decided, hey, these rocks are this old just because that's what he decided. There's no scientific method that's backing this up. Now, here's what you need to understand. You, you say, well, okay, well, the geologic column, maybe it wasn't created using any scientific method, but was it created because it's something that we observe in nature? Because if you remember, remember back in, I think it was the first or second uh, sermon, we talked about what science is. In fact, let me read for you from dictionary.com. Science is defined as the systematic knowledge of the physical or material world gained through observation and experimentation. Science are, is things that we can observe and that we can test or experiment. So here's a question. This was not created by experimentation. So was it created because it was observed in nature? Did Charles Lyle go to the Grand Canyon or go to somewhere, cut a rock, you know, a, 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 a mountain in half and observe the rock layers and said, this is the geologic column. Is that how this was created? Here's the answer. Uh, according to HBJ Earth Science, they wrote back in 1989. Here's what they wrote. If there were a column of sediments deposited continuously since the formation of the earth, the entire history of the planet could be reconstructed. Unfortunately, no such column exists. Here's what you need to understand. The geologic column only exists in textbooks. There's nowhere on earth that you can go and cut a mountain in half and observe these rocks in this order. And doesn't that just make sense? Because here's what they're teaching. They're teaching that these layers were created over millions and millions of years and that these rocks formed, you know, that the rocks at the bottom are older than the, rock, than the layers at the top. But here's, here's why that's silly. If it's taking millions and millions of years for these rocks to form, I mean, aren't you going to have like weather rain, you know, aren't there going to be different things that are happening over millions of years? Here's the thing. This doesn't exist anywhere. You cannot find these rocks in this, in this order with these fossils in them anywhere but in the minds of evolutionists, in the minds of Charles Lyle. And they even admit to the fact that, unfortunately, here's what they're saying. They're saying, if we could find it, here's what it would look like. Well, what science do you have to back that up? Oh, you know, no science. We just decided that's how it is. If we could find it, here's what it looked like. But you can't find it anywhere on planet Earth. Not only were the dates made up, not only were the layers of rocks, the dates made up by Charles Lyell, but here's what you need to understand. The entire column was made up. Because the layers in that order with those fossils is not found anywhere in the planet. You can't find it. So here's the next question. Is the geologic column reliable? Is the geologic column reliable? Can we rely on this to prove the age of dinosaurs? Which, by the way, next week we're going to talk about dinosaurs in the Bible. 
and, you know, did, the Bible talks about dinosaurs and did men walk with dinosaurs. Can we use the geologic column to, to, as a reliable means to say this dinosaur is this million years old or this animal is this million years old? Here's the problem with the geologic column. It's unreliable, and here's why. Because it uses circular reasoning. Let me read for you a couple of quotes. This is from the American Journal of Science, written back in 1976. They wrote this, A fossil cannot be dated by itself. It can only be dated by knowing where in the geologic column it was found. A layer of rock cannot be dated without knowing what fossils are found in it. Now, please understand what they just said. They said, a fossil can only be dated by finding out which layer of rock it was found in. Well, how do you date the rock? Well, based on the fossils we find in it. And here's what they said. This is why we cannot accurately date anything using the geologic column. They go on to say, the intelligent layman has long suspected circular reasoning. I'm not intelligent. You're intelligent. Circular reasoning in the use of rocks to date fossils and fossils to date rock. You say, how do, they, how do you know that the Jurassic period, the, the, the quarry dinosaurs are, you know, 210 or 140 million years old? How do you know that? Well, because we found their fossils in rock that is that old. Oh, okay. Well, how do you know that rock is that old? Well, because we found this dinosaur in it, and we know that dinosaur is that old. So you know how old the dinosaur is based on the rock you found it in. And you know how old the rock is based on the type of animals. That's circular reasoning. There's nothing logical in that. You're just making stuff up. You're putting it in a book and you're, believe, and, and, and you're believing it. And you say, you call that science, but what we have is religion. No, I think they're both religion. I think they're both taken by faith. See, the geologic column is not reliable. And by the way, this is the primary way that they, that, they, that they date fossils today. There are different ways of dating fossils, but this is the primary way they do it. Another way of doing it is using radiometric dating. Radiometric dating. Let me read for you from uh, an article called The Way It Really Is, Little Known Facts About Radiometric Dating. Many people think that radiometric dating has proven the earth is millions of years old. That's understandable, given the image that surrounds the methods. Even the way dates are reported, e.g. 200.4 plus or minus 3.4 uh, million years, uh, gives the impression that the method is precise and reliable. And that's what I want you to understand. They're professing themselves to be wise. They give us these answers and they say, like, they, the, the way they give them to us, we just think, like, whoa, they must know what they're talking about. The article goes on to say, however, although we can measure many things about a rock, we cannot directly measure its age. For example, we can measure its mass, its volume, its, col its color, its, uh, the minerals in it, their size, and the way they are arranged. We can crush the rock and measure its chemical composition and the radioactive elements it contains, but we do not have an instrument that directly measures age. Before we can calculate the age of a rock from its measured chemical composition, we must assume that radioactive elements were in the rock when it was formed. And I want you to notice the word assume. And then, depending on the assumptions we make, we can obtain any date we like. It may be surprising to learn that evolutionary geologists themselves will not accept a radiometric date unless they think it is correct, i.e., it matches what they already believe on other grounds. So here's what you need to understand. They tell us, well, we can measure, we, we can measure the chemical compositions and the radioactive elements that are contained in a rock. But here's what you need to understand. You may be able to measure those things, but you have to start, and they start with certain assumptions of where it should have been, and here's the thing, they're already going into it with the belief system that the earth is millions of years old. So when they tell you we've, we've you know, used radiometric dating to prove that rocks are millions of years, please understand that before they ever performed the test on that rock, they started with the assumption that the rock is millions of years old. So they never came up with an accurate number. They're just saying, based on our measurements, if it's this million, millions years old, you say, well, how do you know it's that many millions of years old? Because of the fossils we found in it. See, the truth of the matter is this. Radiometric dating could not be possible today if it wasn't for the geologic column. It's made up. But they, but they put on a lab coat, and they put on glasses, and they sound smart, and they get millions of dollars from the government. And we just think like, well, it must be true. But here's the thing. It's not true because it's based on assumptions. Here's a quote from uh, Kent Hovind. He said, radiometric dating 
would not have been feasible if the geologic column had not been erected first. They do not date fossils by carbon dating. Fossils are dated by their geologic positions. And as we mentioned earlier, the dates on the geologic column were chosen out of the clear blue sky with no scientific basis. So their entire dating method for dating rocks and fossils is based off of circular reasoning. So here's the question. Can we trust the geologic column? No. Why? Because it was just made up. There's no evidence there's nothing in nature that shows that this is true. There's no scientific method that shows that this is true. Can we trust radiometric dating? No. Why? Because it's based on this. Because it's based on a lie. How about carbon dating? Now, what is carbon dating? You may or may not be familiar with carbon dating. Let me read for you from Wikipedia, just an explanation of what carbon dating is. Radiocarbon dating, also referred to as carbon dating or carbon 14 dating, is a method for determining the age of an object containing organic materials by using the properties of radiocarbon, 14C, a radioactive isotope of carbon. Basically, carbon dating is uh, measuring the amount of uh, decay or the carbon inside of you know, whatever it is that they're trying to, trying, to date, uh, trying to find the date for, usually for an animal. And here's the question. Can carbon dating be trusted? Is it reliable? All right. Let me read for you just a, a, a few things here. Uh, this is from the Geologic Survey professional paper uh, written back in 1975. It says, one part of the Volosovic mammoth, so they found a mammoth, they call it the Volosovic mammoth, uh, was dated, was carbon dated, one part at 29,500 years old. So they took a part of this mammoth they found, they had it carbon dating, dated one part 29,500 years old. Another part of the same mammoth, the same animal was dated at 44,000 years old. Okay, so you got one animal. Part of it is 29,000 years old, 29,500 years old. The other part of the same, same animal is 44,000 years old. Here's a question I have for you. Is that reliable? Which one of those is right? Or, you know, more likely, neither one of those is right. Let me read for you from the Geologic Survey Professional Papers. This was back in the 70s also. One part of Dima, this was a baby frozen mammoth that was found. One part of Dima was 40,000 years old. Another part, again, of the same mammoth, was 26,000 years old. So they take a frozen mammoth, you know, these, these mammoths would break the ice and fall into the water and, and freeze completely whole. And they, they, they use radiocarbon dating to to check one part of the animal, to check another part of the animal, one part 26,000 years old, the other part 40,000 years old. Is that reliable? Let me refer you from, the, from an article called Nature's Deep Freeze from Natural History back in 1949. The lower leg of the Fairbanks Creek mammoth had a radiocarbon age of 15,380 radiocarbon years, while its skin and flesh were 21,300 radiocarbon years old. Again, when you, when you use carbon dating for the same animals, they come up with these wild, you know, these wild dates. So here's a question. Is it reliable? And the answer is no. And this is, look, this is not written by fundamental Baptists. This is just research papers of, of scientists that are, 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 that are writing about this. Here's from, a, uh, let's see, from an article from the Colorado Creek Mammoth uh, in Alaska, uh, Quarterly Research, Volume 37, in 1992. They wrote this. The two Colorado Creek Mammoths found in Alaska. Keep in mind, these mammoths were found side by side. All right, they, they fell into the ice, they froze together. Two Colorado Creek mammoths had radiocarbon ages of 22,850 years old, plus or minus 670, and the other one 16,150 years old, plus or minus 230 years, respectively. Okay, so here's the thing. One is 22,850 years, the other one is 16,150 years. Now, are we supposed to believe that one fell in you know, and then 6,000 years later, another one happened to fall in right next to it. You know, obviously these animals were together, but yet they're separated and they're carbon dating by thousands of years. And here's the only point that I'm trying to make. When they talk to you and they try to explain to you, well, here's how carbon dating works, and they explain to you the carbon in the atmosphere and the fact that the, it's in the plants and the animals eat the plants and blah, blah, blah. And they say all that to try to make themselves smart. Just remember, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Because when you actually look at the data, when you actually look at the result, they can't get it right in one animal. And yet they tell us 
that because of this, we know that these animals are millions of years old. Because of this, we know that dinosaurs are millions of years old. Again, a quote from Kent Hovind. He said this, here are some things to consider about carbon dating. When something of known age is dated, it doesn't work. When something of unknown age is dated, carbon dating is assumed to work. As long as you don't know what the age of the animal is, you know, it works every time. It's reliable. But if you're dating something of known age, then it's like, oh, we made a mistake. And people will do tests on these places that do these carbon datings, and they'll have them date like, uh, like a lot, you know, they'll send them uh, things, uh, uh, you know, hair or whatever it is that they use to, to date these things, of live animals, animals that are still alive, and they'll date them as 22,000 years old. You know, and they'll send, you know, different types of, uh, of things and get different results. Then they'll just switch them up. And, and here's the thing. And then when they tell them that, like, hey, we just switched them up and you gave us. And it's like, oh, we made a mistake. Because here's what you need to understand. They do their test, but then they look at this thing. And they say, uh, it doesn't match this. It, doesn't, it, it, it must be wrong. And they'll do tests and tests and tests over and over until they get the number they want. And here's the, the only point I'm trying to make is this. The scientific methods that we're told today that are being used, radio, uh, radiometric dating, carbon dating, the geologic column, they're not reliable. They're not scientific. You say, well, it came from NASA. It came from this university. It came from that university. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They are, it's not reliable. And here's the thing. As Christians, we need to just realize that the Bible is reliable, number one. But just by comparison, the, the Bible is as reliable as anything written by these guys. Because there's no science behind this. Now here's the problem with many Christians today. And here's where we're going to get kind of more into the, in, into the, into the Bible. Go, go to 2 Peter chapter number 3. A lot of Christians today have given in to these false doctrines. Because Christians, you know, they, they see them with their lab coats. They see them with their glasses. They see them with their, you know... All these nerdy guys at universities, and they're like, oh, they must, they must know something we don't know. And, and the earth must be billions of years old. So then Christians today have decided to believe these false doctrines to try to make the Bible fit the billions of years method. And I want to just talk to you real quickly about those, because here's what you need to understand. And, and here's the whole point of the sermon. If, if you've already, you're like, Pastor, this stuff bores me. I don't really care. That's fine. Here's all I want you to get. Just get this, all right? The Bible is reliable. The Bible is reliable. What, what the Bible says is true. And don't let people trick you into saying, oh, no, science has disproven. Science has disproven nothing. And when you actually look at the way that they do things, you'll realize this is just a joke. They're just pushing an agenda. But today we've got these theories where people will say, well, you know, this is how the Bible fits into millions of years. The Bible doesn't have to fit into millions of years. The Bible is true. 6,300 years is, is accurate. But one of these ways is a, is a doctrine called the day-age theory. Who's ever heard of the day-age theory? Let's talk about the day-age theory here for a little bit. Are you there in 2 Peter chapter 3? Look at verse 8. This is the, number, this is the key verse for the proponents of the day-age theory. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. 2 Peter 3, 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is as with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Second uh, Peter 3, 8 says, look, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So people have taken that verse and created a doctrine called the day-age theory, which the day-age theory basically teaches that each day in the creation account represents a period of time, the day-age theory. So in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and keep your finger there in 2 Peter 3.8 or put a bulletin or something there, but go, go with me to Genesis chapter 1. The creation account that is given to us in Genesis 1, where we got six literal days of creation, they'll say, no, every one of those days actually represents an age, a period of time. Because see, with God, a day is like a thousand years. So when he says it's a day, it's really a thousand years. And the earth was created over these thousands of years. And, 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 and that's how we can prove we can fit it into, uh, into the, the evolutionist theory. Now, here's the problem with a couple things, okay? It says that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years. It doesn't say that a day with the Lord is as a million years. 
So even if you want to take 6,000 years for creation and another 6,300 years of mankind living on this earth, that's still, you know, 12,300 years still doesn't get you close to 4.5 billion. All right? So instead of compromising the scripture to get yourself 6,000 years closer to them, why don't you just say the word of God is true and you're a liar? Genesis chapter 1, let's look at it together real quickly. Let me show you just a couple of reasons why the day-age theory is not something you need to believe. It's not something that we need to try to fit into Scripture. And the day-age theory does not fit into Scripture, and here's why. Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we find the creation story, where the account is given to us of how God created the heavens and the earth. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. So I want you to notice in day one of creation, what is created is heaven, the heaven, the earth, and light. And then if light is separated from darkness, that's what God created. But I want you to notice the last part of verse 5 again. And the evening and the morning were the first day. I want you to notice that God not only tells us this is what happened in the first day, but he goes into detail of the time frame of that day. There was a 12-hour period called the evening, and there was a 12-hour period called the morning, which if you, go, if you look at Scripture, you'll find that those are terms just in Scripture used to refer to nighttime and daytime. But here's what he's telling us. This was, this was a 24-hour period. It doesn't say, and the evening and the morning, 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 you know, times a thousand or whatever. He says, look, the evening and the morning were the first day. What is he telling you? He's saying, this happened in a literal 24-hour period. Look at verse 6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And day two, he created the firmament, or the sky, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Notice verse 8. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Another 24-hour period. Look at verse uh, day 3, verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. On day 3, he created the earth, or the dry land. He also uh, united the waters and created the seas. Look at verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of together the waters called the uh, uh, seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, and herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind and God saw that it was good so notice in day three we have the separating of the earth and the waters you got the dry land appearing and the waters being united as the seas you also have there at the end of day three the creation of plant life We saw that in verses 11 through 12. Bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Notice verse 13. And the evening and the morning were the third day. It's a third literal 24-hour period. Look at day four. And God said, let the earth, uh, I'm sorry, let there be light in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Notice that he's making a reference to seasons, days, and years. You know, so if a day is a thousand years, then what's a year? You know, then what's a season? Look at verse 15. And let them be for light in the firmament of heaven and uh, to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. And uh, he made the stars also. So what did he create on day four? The sun, the moon, the stars. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Notice, he's not just telling us it's the fourth day. The evening and the morning. The evening and the morning. The evening and the morning. What's he telling us? These are literal days. There's no day-age theory here. Look at, look at uh, verse 23. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Look at verse 31. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. 
and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Go to the book of Exodus. Keep your place there in, in Genesis. We're going to come right back to it. Go to Exodus chapter number 20. Just the next book after Genesis, you got Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, and look at verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 11. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. The Bible is very clear that God created the heavens and the earth in a literal six-day, seven-day, rested on the seventh day in a literal week, 24-hour period. No day age here. But I want you to just notice a couple things. Exodus 20, 11. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. I want you to remember that, all right? And rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and holiday. So first of all, we're told here, hey, look, he did it in six days. And he rested on the seventh day. What, did he take a thousand years off? Just resting the, you know, the seven, the, the thousand years there? But, but here's what I want you to notice. Go, keep, keep your place there in Exodus 20. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. If, let's say that all the days are actual ages... Every day represents a thousand years. And I'm sure they say, well, it could be a thousand, it could be a million, whatever. Let's say that's true, okay? Here's what's interesting about the creation. Look at verse number, Genesis chapter number 1, and look at verse number 11 again. Genesis 1, 11. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. All right, so according to the creation account, when was plant life created? Day three. But notice what's created on day four. Look at verse 16. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also, and God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, to roll over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Now, don't, don't plants need the sun to survive? Now, here's the thing. According to the creation account, if these are literal 24-hour days, God created plant life on day three. And without the sun, they would not survive. But he created the sun on day four. No big deal. But if these are actual periods of time, are you telling me that the plant survived a thousand years before the sun was created? No. It doesn't work. It's stupid. And look, whenever Christians try to align themselves with evolution, you know what they come up with? A bunch of stupid theories. Amen. You say, look, if you're going to believe the Bible, why don't you just believe the fact that God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days? Like the Bible says, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. The evening and the morning were the third day. There is no day-age theory. It doesn't fit in Scripture. You say, well, what do you do with 2 Peter chapter number uh, 3? Well, go, go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. And also, go to, go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 90. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm 90. And let me read for you a definition from the dictionary of a word called a metaphor. Here's the definition of a metaphor. A figure of speech in which a word or phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable. See, there are these things called metaphors, which is just a figure of speech. It's not literal. And usually you can tell a figure of speech by these words, as. Are you there in 2 Peter 3.8? Look at what it says. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And by the way, if you look at the context, he's talking about the coming judgment of God. And he's talking about the fact that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's talking about the fact that God is long-suffering with us. And he's saying, hey, don't be ignorant of this one thing. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years. Here's what he's saying. Because God is eternal. Because God is, is from the beginning. He says, God can wait one day. God can wait a thousand years. It's all the same thing to him. It's not saying that one day in the Bible means a thousand years. It's a metaphor. He's saying, with God... No big deal waiting a thousand years. He's eternal. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. Are you there in Psalm 90? 
Look at verse 4. Psalm 90 and verse 4. I'll show you another metaphor that's very similar. Psalm 90. And by the way, Psalm 90 is all about time. Remember when we were doing that uh, series on redeeming the time? Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom, right? We're taught that, that look, we, we don't have, our time is limited on this earth. Well, contrast that with Psalm 90 verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight, talking about God, are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night. He's saying, look, like you would say, oh, when did that happen? Ah, just yesterday. For God, something could happen a thousand years ago. And for him, it's like, ah, it just happened yesterday. Because he's eternal. It's called a metaphor. For a thousand years is uh, in thy sight, are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. A watch is, a t- you know, the, 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 the night is divided, the day is divided into these periods of time where a soldier would watch. Again, these are just metaphors. So just because it says that a day is like as a thousand years doesn't mean that a day is a thousand years, all right? The, and, and you can't just pull out verses. Look, whenever you're just pulling random verses out and not looking at the context of what, what they're written in, you're probably going to get yourself into trouble. You're probably going to come up with some false doctrine. So the day-age theory. You say, what is, is, look, 2 Peter 3, 8, Psalm 90, verse 4, they're just metaphors. When it equates a thousand years to a day, it's just a metaphor, the Bible is very clear in Genesis chapter 1, the day age theory cannot happen. But let me give you a second one. Another doctrine that people come up with to try to fit Christianity into the millions of years. And the second one is called the gap theory. We can thank our uh, dispensational friends for this one. The gap theory is another just stupidity that comes out of dispensational theology. And the gap theory... Is this, is this theory, and let's see, where do I want you? Uh, go, go, go back to Genesis 1 and also find the book of Romans. Genesis 1 and, and the book of Romans. We're almost done, right? I'll show you this and, and we'll be done. Genesis 1 and Romans. What is the gap theory? The gap theory is a doctrine that is put out by dispensational theology. And in the United States of America, it was promoted by the Schofield Reference Bible. C.I. Schofield was a hyper-dispensationalist, heretic, but he wrote a very popular Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. He didn't write the Bible. The Bible is just the King James Bible. But there's references in there, and there's notes in there from C.I. Schofield that he put in to help you interpret the Bible. Now, look, if you got the Holy Spirit, you don't need someone to help you interpret the Bible. The Holy Spirit of God will guide you in truth. All right? The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. But if you've got the Spirit of God, you can understand the Bible. But these dispensationalists, a lot of them aren't saved. They need things like the Schofield Reference Bible. And in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, if you were to read the Schofield Reference Bible with its notes, here's what you would read if you read the first three verses. You would read, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. But before you could read verse 3, you would have to skip the notes put in between verses 2 and 3 by C.I. Schofield, which read this, Jeremiah 4, 23-27, Isaiah 24, 1, Isaiah 45, 18, clearly indicate that the earth had undergone a cataclysmic uh, change as a result of divine judgment. The face of the earth bears everywhere the marks of such catastrophe. There are, are not wanting imitations which connect it with the previous testing and fall of angels. And then you would read, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, please understand what he just said. Here's what he said. Between Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Between those two verses, there's obviously, clearly, there's millions of years and they go into this big sci-fi show where they say that the angels fell, Satan fell, there's this huge war between God and the angels, God destroys the earth. I mean, obviously you caught that, right, when you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 3? It's real obvious, right? No, it's not obvious. You, know, you say, what's the problem with the gap theory? Here's the problem with the gap theory. Number one, you wouldn't come up with it yourself. You wouldn't just read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and, and read the creation story and just be like, well, look, obviously there was a huge sci-fi you know, documentary right in between these verses. You wouldn't just read that on your own. 
You have to get that from dispensational theories. Now, let, let, me, let me just read for you a little bit about the gap theory. Uh, this is from an article from a man named Henry Morris. He's a PhD. He's the founder, I think he's a, the founder of uh, Creation Institute Research. But he wrote this. What is the gap theory? And I'm not going to read to you his whole thing. I'm just going to read to you kind of the explanation of the gap theory. One of the popular devices for trying to accommodate the evolutionary ages of the geologists and the astronomers in the creation record of the Bible has been the gap theory. According to this concept, Genesis 1-1 describes the initial creation of the universe. Following this, the standard events of cosmic evolution took place, which eventually produced our solar system about 5 billion years ago, when on Earth, the various geologic ages followed. So here's what they're saying. In Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the Earth. But before, but, but before God creates anything else, billions of years go by, and evolution, the you know, whatever, the, the, the cosmic evolution, the earth being created, our solar system, all of that takes place. But then, before, you know, before you get to verse 3, but then occurred a devastating global uh, cataclysm, destroying all life on earth. Now, I want you to remember that. Destroying all life on earth and leaving a vast fossil graveyard everywhere. This situation is then said to be what is described in Genesis 1-2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The cataclysmic, uh, cataclysm is thought to have occurred as a result of the rebellion of Satan and his angels against their creator in heaven, which God then, uh, with God then casting them out of heaven to the earth. All right, go back to Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see this. Here's what they're saying. And I, and I, I might have misspoke, and, and I apologize. Let me, let me make sure I, I say it correctly. They're saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Between verses 1 and 2, first he created the heavens and the earth, but then in verse 2 when it says, without form and void, that's because between those two verses, you got billions of years, Satan rebelled. There's a big war, and here's what they're saying. Animals were alive on earth. Satan rebelled. There's a big war, and God's judgment comes upon Satan, his angels, and all of the animals on earth. God kills all the animals, which is why we have all the fossils we have today. And here's the thing. You say, well, why do we have all the fossils we have today? Look, it, you don't have to make up some comic book story and insert it into the, between the first two verses of Genesis. You, if you just kept reading the book of Genesis, you'd find three chapters that give you a lot of detail about a big event called the flood, which is obviously where all the fossils came from. All these animals were killed in the Noahic flood. And that's, you know, because fossils don't just form. They have to be buried rapidly. But, you know, C.I. Schofield and his friends, Peter Ruckman and his friends, Sam Gipp and his friends, you know, all these, I don't know if Sam Gipp believes this, but dispensationalists, you know, believe this stuff. They say between these, uh, these times, there's billions of years, and this is what happened. Now, uh, did I finish reading this? Let me see. The earth was without form and void. Doctrine was bound in the face of the deep. The, cataclysmic, uh, the cataclysm is thought to have uh, occurred as a result of the rebellion. So I want you to notice, there's two main things. There's, there's destroying of all the life on earth, which resulted in the fossils. And then there's the rebellion of Satan and his angels against their creator in heaven with God, then casting them out of heaven. So that's the gap theory. Now, why does the gap theory not work? Okay, three reasons. Number one, you wouldn't have came up with that on your own. You wouldn't have just read the first three verses of the Bible and said, well, of course. Okay? Someone had to teach you that. But, but let me give you two biblical reasons why the gap theory does not work. Go, go back to Genesis chapter 1. Did you go to Romans? Romans chapter 8. Find Romans real quickly. We're going to look at two references in Romans, and then we'll be done. All right? And, and next week, we're going to talk about dinosaurs. It'll be more interesting and exciting for those of you that are asleep. Or come back tonight. And we'll talk about the matters of the heart. We'll talk about what's wrong with your heart, why you don't love the Word of God. Say, Pastor, why are you always angry? I'm not angry. This is how I talk, okay? It's just how I communicate. Genesis 1. Look at verse 31, okay? If, if we are to believe that the rebellion of Satan happened between Genesis 1 and uh, chapter, chapter 1 and verse 1, chapter 1 and verse 2, all right? Which we don't believe that. We believe it happened after the creation story. Then here's the problem. 
why would God say at the end of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Why would he say that? Because here's what they believe. Between verse 1 and 2, you got, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, billions of years of chaos, rebellion, death, and then, and, but then God kills all the animals, he takes care of Satan, and then you go right straight into the creation story where you go to the rest of the days where he's basically recreating the earth. Why would God get to the end of that and say, man, everything is good? Why don't you get to the end of that and say, whoa, this was a terrible idea. Good night. I've already had to destroy. I'm only at verse 31. I'm only at chapter 1 of the Bible. I've already destroyed the earth once. Look, the fact that God says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That would be a lie for God to look at Satan, who he created, if Satan has already rebelled, and say, behold, it was very good. God couldn't say that if Satan had rebelled. So obviously Satan had not rebelled yet. So the gap theory doesn't work. But there's another reason why the gap theory doesn't work. And here's why. Go to Romans. Um, so we just read there in Genesis 131, right? God saw, when God created, at the end of the creation story, when the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, God looked at everything and he said, look, it was very good. That's what he said. Does, that, does God say that about creation right now? After the rebellion, after the fall of man? No. Look at what God, how God talks about creation today. Back in the Garden of Eden, it was very good. Today, look at Romans 8.22. Romans 8.22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Doesn't that describe our planet a little more accurately? Isn't that the, isn't that the world we live in? We know that whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. When we see people we love with cancer, when we see people we love dying, when we see these animals that are not living in the state that God created them, that's the world you and I live in. It's called the fallen world. It's called the sinful world. Okay? If, if, if God would have said that in Genesis 131, maybe the gap theory would be true. If he would have said, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. But that's not what he said. He said, it's good. Which means that Satan wasn't bad at the end of the creation story. So that's one reason that gap theory doesn't work. Let me give you another reason. Go to Romans 5. The gap theory teaches that God killed all these animals during those billions of years between verses 1 and 2, which is why you have all those fossils. Here's what it's teaching. That death happened before Adam was even created. That animals died, and that's why we have those fossils billions of years ago. Because remember, what are, what are they trying to fit into? They're trying to fit, oh yeah, all these bill animals that died billions of years ago, that was during the gap. That was between verses 1 and 2. Didn't you learn, didn't you just see that? It was real apparent. You know, once you read the Schofield references, not just reading the Word of God. But what does the Bible teach? Revelation 5.14. There's many verses we go to, I'm just going to show you one. Romans 5.14. Romans chapter 5.14, I want you to look at it. Romans 5.14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. According to the Bible, when did death begin? It began with Adam. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, if, if, look, if the gap theory is true, then the writings of Paul are a lie. And the writings of the New Testament are a lie because death did not happen with Adam. It happened billions of years ago between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. It's a lie. We don't have to go down that road. Look, as Christians, we don't have to try to make the Bible fit millions of years. The Bible is already true. The, the Bible is reliable. Let me finish with one verse and we'll be done for this morning. Go to Psalm 33. Psalm 33. And look at verse 4. Psalm 33 and verse 4. Now next week, I say, well, Pastor Jimenez, you didn't really prove that the earth was millions of years old. That's not my, uh, that the earth is 6,300 years old, other than just showing, telling you that's what the Bible says. Here's the point. I'm not trying to prove to you that the, that the earth is 6,300 years old. I'm not going to bring 
uh, a rock in here and put it inside of a microwave and go, doo, 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 and it's going to print out a receipt and say, see, 6,003 years. Okay? That's not my goal. All right? Because, you know, you have to come to God by faith. We've kept saying that over and over. You just accept the Bible by faith. But here's what I want you to understand. When they do their little do 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 and print out the receipt, it's false. There's no science behind it. There's no logic behind it. It's just made up. It's not true. All I'm trying to tell you is they haven't proven the earth is millions of years old. So you got to decide. What do you believe? You believe fairy tales? Millions and millions of years ago in a galaxy far, far away. Is that what you believe? Or do you believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? And we have to try to fit anything else into that. We just believe the Bible. We just take it for what it's worth. Now, next week. Now, here's the thing. Because the earth is not millions of years old, evolutionists teach us that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. They'll teach us that man has never seen a dinosaur. Well, that goes against what the Bible teaches also because the Bible tells us that a man saw a dinosaur, many of them. And, uh, and we're going to talk about that next week. So next week we're going to talk about did dinosaurs live millions of years, which obviously the answer is no from this sermon. You can take that. And did men walk with dinosaurs? We're going to talk about that next week. But here's what I want you. I just want you to take this one. Take this one truth. If, if you, you're bored with the sermon, you say, can't wait till the series is over. I want you to take this one truth. Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is right. For the word of the Lord is right. And all his works are done in truth. Amen. Look, this, this Bible's reliable. Amen. And I'll take this book any day over all other science books. Amen. The word of the Lord Amen. is right. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to be shaken by the science of today. And Lord, thank you for giving us wisdom to be able to just do some quick research and find out that the science of today is not science anyway. It's science falsely so-called. It's not been observed in nature. It's not been proven by any test. Lord, I pray you'd help our faith not to be shaken. And help us to always rely upon your word. We love you, Father, in your precious name I pray. 